If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast. how are you doing there it is podcast time and actually in fact we're live we're, we're back doing live podcasts even though i am still away john is looking resplendent on the screen there in dublin how are you head uh, Mac, you actually have a tan. I know. Or is that just high blood pressure? I'm not sure. It, well, it's always high blood pressure. You know me, sure. I'm on, I'm on the meds. It, even Redsers, if they spend long enough uh, in close proximity to the Mediterranean, <laughs> they will be fine. But uh, no, it's, I mean, the weather here is, it's, it's Croatia. It's brilliant. I tell you what I was at last, last week, John. I was in the Sarajevo Film Festival in Sarajevo. Oh, yeah. And Sarajevo is one of the great, great cities. And I tell you what, it's got like, for example, you walk down the street and there's a little plaque and the little plaque says, this is where Gabrielle Princip murdered Franz Ferdinand to start the First World War. And it's like a little plaque. It's like, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, there's, there's, there's little plaques you have in houses in Dublin, you know, yeah, yeah, Leopold yeah, yeah. Bloom the lived here, thing, yeah. right? And then you turn around and of course you have the Bosnian War, the, the, the most recent one, but you have the First World War, then you're into this old, old Turkish area the old town, which is all Turkish. And then you're up in the, into the, the sort of the Austrian town. Now, the Austrians were only there for 50 years, but they must have kept building all the time because they built an entire city. Right. And then, of course, the film festival, it was in honour of Wim Wenders, the German director. Oh, yeah. Wings brilliant. of Desire and all that sort of stuff. And uh, it was just fantastic. Like, if anybody is listening and they want a strange fascinating, eventful, curious, different holiday, Sarajevo, well worth it. I mean, you've got to take on board. We went to see the Srebrenica Museum, you know, and Srebrenica yeah. was the place where the Serbs... The massacre, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that would chill you to the bone. And the reason it chills you to the bone, there's a variety of reasons, but one of them is the footage is all in colour. It's all as if it happened yesterday. 
Oh, yeah, as opposed to kind of looking at footage from World War II. Two, which is all like grainy and static. This yeah, is, this yeah, is yeah. you actually see it, you know. And But uh, I actually remember seeing that live on TV. Yes. And the news 1995. On, on TV. Yeah. Do you remember they, they separated the, the boys oh, and, the, yeah. and, I mean, it's and the girls and the women? It's, it's, and it's absolutely horrendous. And, and the one thing you do feel in Sarajevo is the proximity of the war. Like it felt that it happened only yesterday. And of course now... What you get is the Kuwaitis, Qataris, Saudis are investing hugely in Bosnia. Yeah. So there's a sort of an Arabization, a little bit of the culture. So lots of hajibs and all that sort of stuff. But then again, you have the vast majority of Bosnian Muslims are boozing, eating pork, going out, having a laugh. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really strange clash of cultures, but it's a fantastic place. Fantastic place. Actually, I'll tell you a story. One of my mates, his brother was an Irish army guy and he was working with the UN and he was head of the military police in the Sarajevo base there. Okay. And the base is something like 4,000 troops there. And they were made up of Americans, British, French, Italians, and probably a few others. And some of the lads went over to see him. He brought them around and he said... There you go. See, they, the Americans there, they think they are the best at everything. And they have a big McDonald's there in, in, in the thing. And then he brought them over to the French part and he said, the French are a bit crap. You know, they're they're all full of talk, but they're they're a bit crap. There's the Brits. You know, Brits are good. They're really disciplined. Great. And then there's the Italians. They smell the best. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. But actually, actually, we're going to leap today from Bosnia to Afghanistan because this is the big news and this is the awful news. And a lot of the coverage... Sure is. A lot of the coverage has been about the evacuation of the airport, why the Taliban won so quickly, why the government collapsed. But what we're going to do now, John, is we're going to have a conversation with somebody who herself was a refugee from Afghanistan. She's called Nelifer Pazira. She is the wife of the late Bob Fisk, Robert Fisk, the yeah. columnist, you know, one of, one of the great, great war correspondents of our time. Somebody I got to know over the years and therefore I got to know Nelifer with Robert Fisk. And her story is an eyewitness account of what it's like to have been born in a country Afghanistan, that has become the fulcrum of geopolitical strife in that region for not the last four years, not the last 20 years, but the last 40 years. So I think you'll find this conversation extraordinary. So we'll go now and we'll talk to Nelifer. Nelifer, you are very welcome. How are you? Thank you very much. Nice to be on your program, David. Now, Nelifer, do you remember a couple of years ago, we sat together in a restaurant in Dorky, we had a couple of pints and Finnegan's, we went across the road to the guinea pig, and you started talking to me about your youth and about your childhood in Afghanistan and being brought up and then having to move into exile, being a refugee in Pakistan. Can you tell me and tell the listeners, tell me that story again? Yes, I do remember that conversation, David, very well. Um, um, listen, I mean, I grew up in Kabul, 
um, during the Soviet occupation of the country, uh, which seems like a very far distant memory for a lot of people. But that's very real as part of my life because uh, we grew up in a kind of a police state. Uh, however, um, women were kind of left on their own. We didn't have a dress code, uh, could go to school. The quality of education wasn't terribly great because obviously most of the teachers were running away from the country at the time. The professional class were fleeing. Every year um, you would hear, you would see less and less of the professional class left in the country, especially in Kabul. But it was a, a childhood that was obviously affected by war to some extent. Um, in the early days, we could hear the sounds of it. We were aware of, especially as a teenager, of the number of bodies that were being brought back in our streets, in our neighborhoods. The young man that would be drafted into the army because there was a conscription and then the bodies would return from front lines and the numbers started to get bigger. And, and my mother used to say that, you know, there was a time when I used to spend my afternoons going to ladies parties, but now it is all taken up by going to the funerals. So that was kind of a, the, the, the picture of life and the reality of life. And then eventually the war really arrived at our doorsteps because we used to receive all these rocket fires that were uh, sent across by the uh, Mujahideen that were sort of the holy warriors, the predecessors of the Taliban, so to speak. And they were fighting the Russian occupation and the communist government. And we justified those rocket fires at the time because I was very much in favor of the resistance movement and against occupation. So uh, despite the fact that we were victims of that atrocity, we hardly complained about it and we just blamed the Russians for everything. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the life that I grew up with, uh, very familiar with those um, circumstances of fear and and, and therony and, and just this in constant worry about insecurity and what's going to happen to you next. Eventually, my father was a medical doctor and my mother was a school teacher, both professional and educated. Uh, they uh, decided that it was time for us to flee the country uh, because the lawlessness, economy completely destroyed. There was harsh winters and very little supply of food in the country. And so we uh, walked over the train of the mountains and through the villages for 10 days uh, from Kabul with nothing except for um, our own clothes, which were supposed to look like the villagers. So we dressed in a very kind of a modest outfit. We had a little bag which had two candles, a bag of dry nuts and two blankets. And that was all we took with us from our <laughs> life. That was it. And we walked across, we arrived in Pakistan. We were extremely welcomed. And from there on, we started from year zero and built a life again. But luckily, we got very lucky, especially because of my father's profession. Canada gave, accepted us as refugees. And I was 18 when I arrived in Canada. And that's when I also started to learn English. So from there onward, obviously, we, um, we were quite fortunate to make a life of our own. But for my parents, it always remained a very difficult situation because they always wanted to go back to their country and they could never really return to go back and, and, and live there or work there again. So that's in a nutshell, the kind of uh, world that I am familiar with. And I've been going back to Afghanistan quite frequently. So, so where is your head today and where is your heart today when it comes to the news coming out of Kabul? 
Well, look, I mean, when you look at all the images of the dreadful situation uh, around the airport, I'm also in contact, of course, with uh, both family members, relatives. I have an aunt who lives in Kabul. I have cousins, my first cousins. I also have a charity that worked inside Afghanistan for the last nearly 20 years, providing education for women. And over the last 20 years as well, most of my work, films and projects have all been concentrating on Afghanistan and especially women's rights. And I've had a number of young Afghan, a very dedicated Afghan sort of young generation that have worked with me uh, throughout the years. So So I'm in contact with all these people across from Herat to Bamyan to Mazar to Kabul, and my phone is flooded with messages. So first of all, going through that experience of leaving everything behind and the pain of that, it is very real to me. Uh, It brings a host of different emotions. There is a lot of also in my heart, a lot of anger about the international community and specifically about the Americans for creating the situation that could have certainly be avoided. I have no doubt that decision to leave the country is not under question here. It's in the manner and the way that the international community with the leadership of the United States had decided to to evacuate and to leave the country, which has brought out uh, this kind of unnecessary pain and suffering of the Afghans again. And Nelifer, what do you think is about to happen? What do you think comes next? You know, because... But the, 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 the news flow is concerned about the airport, the Taliban, the takeover, the collapse of the government, the collapse of the army. How did it happen? But if you're sitting in Kabul as your relations are and your friends, what you're thinking about is, well, OK, what next? The trepidation. Okay. Yeah. So there, one, first of all, there was a sense of, at first and the immediate, was a bit of a sense of resignation in part of a lot of people, including uh, a lot of young women who were uh, saying, look, we don't know what to do. We don't understand. There is not even hope anymore because in the past, like as my aunt said, in the first time when the Taliban came to power, we used to say, well, one day the West will come to our support and now the West have come and gone. So hope is gone. That is a big deal because when you lose hope, there is very little chance, you know, for you to resist and survive. Then across the board, Afghan women are quite resilient. And there are people I talked to were telling me that we're not going to give up. It's going to be hard, but we are going to try our best of what we can. And they're prepared to fight for what's theirs and that's their rights. Then as well, there is the worrying concern now. So we are talking about the resistance movement now shaping in the north of the country. In the Panjshir Valley, which is quite famous for its resistance because no foreign army, including the Taliban in the 90s, have been able to capture that area. So, But it is predominantly Tajik. Their language of communication is Persian or Farsi. And there is a, a group of young generation of Afghans, plus the older generation that have come together now. And I also heard from some sources in Afghanistan that a number of the National Army uh, soldiers that fled Kabul or didn't fight the Taliban, they are now joining them as well. So they're putting together some kind of a force to try to create a sense of resistance. And they do have, they call themselves National Resistance Front. The difficulty with that is that who is going to support them? They have now extended an, a, a situation telling the Taliban, we like you to create an inclusive government and we will come to the table. But the difficulty, and you can understand this, that you have on the one hand, a group of men who have joined the Taliban 
they have not been to academies or schools and have studied. They have no idea about the sense of governance. They are not familiar even with the language of politics. So how would they be able to form a government with a group of opposition who their leader has a master's degree in international politics. And the rest of that movement, Amrullah Saleh, which was the former vice president, was the top spy agency intelligence uh, officer in Afghanistan and well-educated. So you have a, a group of people who basically for the last 20 years have done nothing except maybe some religious indoctrination in their villages and towns. And they have come all the way now to Kabul and people are terrified from the, just the way even they look, let aside from the, the guns that they carry. And then you have the opposition who are far more educated and much more experienced. And would they form a government? How long would that government last? So there's a lot of questions about that. But if that possibility doesn't work, which seems more likely because of the ethnicity and linguistic differences and the cultural differences, of course, there would be the possibility of a civil war. And so can you imagine which is the worst, living with a maybe seminal security, utterly draconian regulations and restrict Islamic law, no freedom, or living in a civil war? So the options are actually not good at all. And because of that, the uh, people I've been talking to all day today, they're quite concerned about what's going to happen next. The immediate situation is the economics uncertainty as well, because the shops have some supplies, but if the borders remain closed between the neighboring countries, how would they get food? Winter is coming up. And on top of that, what is the West going to do? That's a big question. If the West is going to support the National Resistance Front, they're in fact putting back money into resisting Taliban in a form of a civil war where they could have actually be better off if they have stayed in the country and provided support to the national army that was supposed to have been, you know, and the police force that were in some form of a training and at least they had proper uniforms. So it's really, really a, not a, a kind of a situation that looking at it realistically, you would assume there is a lot of good options available. Well, it's always these sort of situations. It's never an option between good and bad. It's always between bad and worse. You know, when you get to the, when you get the situation, can I just ask you briefly about your friends, your female friends, your women friends in Afghanistan, the educated girls, the girls who went to college, the girls who said, I can be, I can do something with my life. Spent the last 20 years building their lives up. When you're talking to them on the phone, when you're, when you're hearing their stories, what are they saying? What is the, what is the, the main emotion there? abandonment. They feel that they have been totally abandoned. They feel that exactly that hope of something for the future was taken away from them. Because you would understand, people going to school in Afghanistan wasn't very easy. Also, I mean, look, there was so much of a concentration of news coverage about the Kabul airport. There was no talk of the countryside, what is happening in the countryside. These women fear for reprisals. They fear that in their own towns and villages, there would have been the Taliban man that have, with resentment, had seen their achievement and successes over the last 20 years. Some of them would have been neighbors growing up next to them. And here is now an opportunity for these young Taliban because 
even their own leadership might be looking very nice and sleek and tidy on camera for the Western media and making statements about an inclusive government and, oh, we would allow women to go to school, but no details available. Do do you think, would they be able to put all these other young Taliban men who have been fighting with them to tell them, now you discipline yourself, don't do anything bad, and just go back to your village and carry on with your whatever life you had. So it is really, really, for the voices of these young women I talk to, you can hear that sense of, total sense of betrayal. They feel that they've been betrayed because the hope of the future has been taken away from them. It is not just the opportunity for education. It's, as I said, it's the feeling of, Someone took away your hope from you, and that's very difficult to replace. And in my conversations with them, I'm trying to not say things that I know is not possible because they're so much more intelligent and realistic about everything, but at the same time, trying to keep a bit of that hope. And it's a very difficult situation because, you know, it's not something that you can just tell them, oh, yeah, well, the world will come and help you because what what shape that hope would be in, you know? There is that, uh, I mean, and also I can sense sometimes there are after this, the feeling, the sense of uh, defeat. One young uh, woman that worked with the Afghan media, uh, she said to me, you know, but we are not going to give up. We're not going to give up. Whatever it will be, even if it means I cover myself and wear the burqa, I'm still going to try to do something. So it, I think they're going through this amount of mixed emotions about what they're going to do. But uncertainty, you know, that in itself creates enough anxiety. So it's it's hard. It's, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. Jennifer, if, can I just ask you, you mentioned there about that news conference that the Taliban have given to the Western media promising all of this inclusivity and women's rights. You know, you pretty much said that it's not believable at all, but, you know, they are going to have to demonstrate in some way or other to follow through on that. Do you, do you think that's possible? And what form would that take? Well, I think the situation is as such that the Taliban are also in, in a predicament because they have taken over a city. They didn't expect it probably as that would go very fast and they got it. They have no experience in governance. They have nobody to fill in the civil services uh, function. They might have an army, but an army is good when you fight. What do you do with an army when the war is over? Yeah. So in a way, if the resistance movement in Panjshir develops, that will give the Taliban an opportunity to continue in this very bizarre circumstances by rolling just around the streets with guns and telling people to stay home because it's not safe. But if there is no war, they will have to show some degree of, okay, how is the city going to run? Forget about even opening the schools, the banks. They have to, people are running out of cash. The shop needs supplies. So they have to start by putting something in place. And then where are they going to have the money to pay? Let's assume that they are asking civil servants so desperately right now. In fact, they are sending messages, and I've looked through some of their messages that are sending over by the phone to everybody uh, through the networks, is that we don't want to harm you. We have issued a pardon for everyone, including the army and the police force. Please return to your jobs and as well to the civil servants. But if the civil servants go back to their work, they expect in four weeks' time to be paid. So how is that going to function? 
because of that, I think they're they're not going to have a very easy time to get away with things. A war would be a saving grace for them. But if the situation is as it is right now and the West is sort of halfway watching, mostly uh, civil society in the West rather than just the politicians, they will have to come up with some kind of a compromise. And that might actually encourage them to form a government that would include a group that will function as a civil servant. But the unfortunate thing that that government may not be very lasting. But in the immediate, there is a very little sense of trust in Taliban because of the brutality of what they did in the 1990s. And they never issued a regret. Even now that they have come to power, they haven't said that we are so sorry for all the things we did so badly. What they are saying is that, oh, well, you didn't like us last time. We're just going to try to be different. But again, there are no details of how different. And how would the woman even trust them? You know. And so this is the question of not having the public's trust. And they haven't done anything yet to, to actually gain that trust. And Afghans are so full aware of, of the fact that they are doing the double talk because one of the things they've just been doing the last week uh, through some leak, they got access to a list of intelligence officers that were in the army, and they have gone to people's door to door and searching for them and confiscating their passports. They're not putting them in prison, but they're collecting documents so they're not going to be able to leave the country, which signals that obviously they're waiting for an opportunity to settle some 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 scores later on. But that's just the, the beginning of it. So I have no sense of trust in Taliban. I don't think any person with a sound mind would believe that, you know, these these guys are just going to turn into the very nice people and run a proper government. It, it's almost impossible to actually imagine it. Now, if I can ask just before we go, we started this conversation with the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, and we're talking about a 40-year period, more or less. In the first 20 years of that 40-year period, it was the humiliation of the Soviet Union. Many, many people will say the Soviet Union collapsed because of the Polish Catholic Church in the West and of the Islamic Revolution in the South. These were the two big forces that actually undermined the Soviet system. The last 20 years has been about the Americans since 9-11. But the theater, the fulcrum, has always been Afghanistan. Now it's the American humiliation after the Soviet humiliation. Looking at that geostrategic sort of, first was the Russians' humiliations, now it's the American humiliation. Who's next? What big player is next in there? Well, I mean, uh, clearly the benefit from the circumstances as it is with the vacuum left by the American is Iranians. Well, Pakistanis are directly, of course, the creators of Taliban, so they're already involved quite a large extent. You have China and India. Now, if anyone in the West had assumed that perhaps they might be able to drag China into a war in Afghanistan and undermine their economy like the way it happened with the communists, I think they will have to think twice because I doubt that the Chinese will actually want to get involved. They have always refrained from getting involved in conflicts that they cannot 100% control. They can suppress and oppress a population like they would in within their own borders or outside, but they can't. They will not get involved in an international war. They might channel uh, money and support for the Taliban, and the Russians probably as well already involved. But Russia doesn't have that kind of an economy to support an ongoing war for you know in support of the Taliban or the opposition. So Iranians are in a very interesting position because 
they have courted the Taliban. And they also have had very good relations with the Northern Alliance, and the, which is now the National Resistance Front. And they are the shrewdest in the region that they always invest in um, opposing forces. So they will never actually lose in the long run. So these are kind of, geopolitically speaking, the forces that are there. And India is not in a position to get involved. And I'm afraid that the vacuum has been left behind by the Americans, has created more of a front for the regional forces. And if there is going to be a civil war in Afghanistan, it will direct some of these countries, but neither Iran nor China would ever directly get involved in these wars. They have proven that. You can see, I've seen Chinese fighters where they, uh, in the form of uh, engineers, actually, and Chechen fighters and Afghan fighters in Syria that would have come from Iran. But the Iranians are very careful about sending their own people over. So um, that's kind of the picture uh, in, in terms of its geopolitics. And all these neighboring countries, with exception of Pakistan, of course, are very anti-American. They're anti-Western. And, and I think the Americans have made a huge mistake by creating the circumstances where they, unfortunately, might have to be dragged back into Afghanistan in some form and uh, without, with little credibility that is left for them. But I don't think that they, they all probably end up funding proxy wars, you know, proxies that will fight in Afghanistan but no international uh, force in any form, uh, including the Chinese or the Russians, probably will have an appetite to go to, to Afghanistan. So we'll have to wait and see that how far the Pakistanis are going to go. And maybe this is their turn. Um, who knows? Nelifer, as always, it is a pleasure. Uh, Nelifer's work, by the way, not particularly her cinematic work, is fantastic. Uh, Google Nelifer Pazira. It's nelliferpazira.com as well, isn't it? It's a Pazira. Uh, no, it's called Kandahar Films, but uh, Pazira One is my Twitter and there's all information there. Yeah. Well, we will put that up. But again, Nelifer, listen, thank you so much for taking the call. Thanks so much for talking to us. You know, wish your family and everything the best of luck, but we'll see you when we, we get back to, to, to Dublin and we'll have a natter about everything. Yeah, definitely we do. Thank you so much, David. Nice meeting you as well, John. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Harrowing stuff from Nella for there. She's really interesting. But, well, I but... mean, it, it just shows, you know what it shows you, John, is just the serendipity of life, right? If you happen to be born in Kabul, she's around the same age as us. Mm. Your life trajectory, just by that thing that John Hume used to say about the North, the accident of birth, where you're born, right? Yeah. Your life trajectory is profoundly influenced. We started the conversation about Sarajevo, right? I know lots yeah. and lots of Bosnians, or lots, lots of Croats, lots of Serbs. Their lives have been totally upended by events mm. beyond their control. And they're exactly the same. They were born the same year as us, just in a different place. And, and what you, you get there from Nelifer is just the extraordinary serendipity of life. And look, yeah. you know, you're born... It actually, rem it reminds me of some... You know I worked in BBC World Service. Yeah, I heard that once uh, before. In the, in the uh, Pashtun desk? Yes, indeed. No, but it reminds me, I, I used to have long conversations with a lot of the Afghans. And a lot of the Afghans that were working with World Service were refugees. But I remember, like, one of the producers there told a story about the day that she left Afghanistan was the day that they saw her father hanging from the gates in Kabul. Well, it's, it's the, the level of barbarism is something that we can't get our heads around, you know, mm. because we haven't experienced it. But what is deplorable about Afghanistan is the extent to which it has always been the plaything of various different geopolitical powers. You know, the Brits went in there first, then the Russians, because they were trying to block the Russians. The Brits were always petrified that the Russians would mm. come and take India. And if, you for, if we forget that India or the Raj started in Pakistan, which is just on the border of Afghanistan. So yeah. the Brits and the Russians played what they called their great game there. And now, of course, the Americans are in, but of course the Taliban is produced, is a, is a Pakistani phenomenon. It's produced, yeah. trained and financed from Pakistan. And then, of course, you've got the Iranians who are in there as well. You've got the Saudis who supported the Mujahideen. Of course, you know, people forget that Osama bin Laden was a Saudi jihadi fighter financed by his own family's money who were massive, massive construction companies in Saudi and in the United yeah. States. And in the United yes. States. Yeah. And of course, he sought out Afghanistan as a failed state in order to hide in those Tora Bora mountains and create Al-Qaeda and create that from his, as his base. And of course, then what you have is the Saudis were very, very happy to undermine the Afghanis as long as they were seen to defeat the Soviets and as long as they were seen to pro project their Wahhabi version of Islam uh, all around the region. So what is the tragedy of, of Afghanistan seems to me that geography matters enormously. Yeah. And they yeah. are stuck in a part of the world that we are happy to forget about but is actually crucial and essential for the power play between China. I mean, think of these huge countries, Russia, Turkey, India, China, Iran, Pakistan. 
They're all involved. Yeah, Af- Afghanistan landlocked by all of those. But it's interesting that, the, I mean, that was the reason I asked that question of Nelifer about trust. And she talked about trust there a lot. With the Taliban trying to project a kind of a Taliban 2.0 kind of vibe with a, being more trustworthy, more inclusive, more diverse. And that kind of, it rings hollow to me. And I just wonder how trustworthy they can be going forward. The, 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 I mean, the bottom line is they want to set up a fundamentalist Islamic caliphate in Afghanistan. Is that the bell going in the background? There's the bells. There's the, 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 there's the Catholic bells. Speaking of, we're talking about Islam. The Catholic <laughs> You better bells. head off to Mass, Mac. I tell you, listen, I'll be up going to Mass. I go to confession, John. I go to confession. <laughs> but they love a bell here. They love a bell. And the interesting thing about Croatia... And you being a bell end and all, but and anyway. <laughs> the interesting thing about Croatia is that actually, do you know what happened in Croatia? It's actually what happened in Ireland when they became independent, right, in 1995. Mm. Well, they became independent in 1991, but when they actually ended up that the war was over with the Serbs, suddenly to be to be Croatian, you had to be Catholic as well. So the Catholic Church fused together with Croatian nationalism, exactly like De Valera, right? Mm. And little by little by little, the Catholic Church is encroaching into abortion, into divorce, into all these areas. So Croatia is going through, in a microcosm, what we went through for 70 years after independence, which is that in order to be a proper Croatian, you need to be a Catholic. And in order, therefore, to be a Catholic, you need to be observant. So we can go on it. We can go on a lot about Islam and, and you know how awful it is and la la la. But if you are a liberal and if you are secular, you know, what's happening in countries like this is equally depressing because yeah. lots and lots of social legislation is being rolled back. And actually, in fact, maybe we'll do a Balkan special, John. At certain stage when I get home, we should do. But I do, I, I do see the the parallel there, as you're saying. Kind of, there's almost a, re, a reversing backwards well, with religion taking over and be, becoming more powerful in the same way as Afghanistan. Well, it's. I mean, what it is is that national movements tend typically also to dredge the religious swamp for some relevance. It's a much better way. Of okay, it. and you see that all over the world. So, for example, Yugoslavia banned Christmas Day, right? So that was a bit extreme. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, Christmas Day. You worked on Christmas Day because it was a, it was a socialist country, and of course, yeah. the Catholic religion, exactly like in Ireland, the Catholic religion was a revolutionary anti-establishment movement. In the same way as the Catholic religion in the 19th century and the early 20th century was the movement of the dispossessed in Ireland. So it's very, very similar parallels. Yes. Then, of yeah. course, you get Franjo Tudjman comes in, who was the leader of Croatian nationalism, the first president of Croatia. He solders himself very closely to the Catholic Church. It's an amazing thing here in Croatia. You see young priests and young nuns, right? This is something I've never seen. You don't see this anywhere in Ireland, right? Yeah, absolutely. So Catholicism is vibrant here. It's vibrant here. But the downside of that is it encroaches on all sorts of civil liberties and all sorts of areas of, you know, certainly abortion and divorce and this encroaching and it seeps into politics and you have the HDZ, which are a party very like Fianna Fáil, you know, the parallels are really, really quite, uh, quite sad. For me, as somebody who spends like years down here, sometimes yeah. just sitting in the, in, in the cafes watching, listening to the local conversations, you get the same sort of idea. And this is what happens. National movements tend to want to have some religious affiliation. So you're saying that if Afghanistan becomes 
a like we're casting way into the future, but becomes a settled, prosperous country that religion goes. Islam may may kind of be diluted. Look to the north of Afghanistan. You have Putin, a former KGB communist, has embraced the Orthodox Christian religion like no other Russian leader yes. since yes. the Romanovs, right? Because he understands that in order to sell nationalism, you've got to sell a sort of a spiritual exclusivity, that we're different on every level, not just language and not just culture, but also religion, right? You look to the south of Afghanistan, of course, you have the Iranian regime, which has been soldered to religion for years and years and years. You look to the east, you have Pakistan, which is a Muslim state, explicitly Muslim state. Why? Because the Muslims were kicked out of India in 1948, and they were the massacres on the day the Brits pulled out of India are phenomenal. In actual fact, you should read Salman Rushdie, anything by Rushdie on this area, and this time is, is really brilliant, because Rushdie was a Muslim Indian. Right, So Muslims, basically the Muslims went to Pakistan, the Hindus went to India, but in the middle there was a sectarian war and sectarian violence, which is unprecedented. So what I'm saying, John, is that all around the world, the fragile states need a crutch, and then a lot of times that crutch is religion. And what you have in Afghanistan is that perfect storm of religion, of geopolitical significance, of fragility, of intervention, of our colonialism taking over their country, all of which comes together in this horrendous soup, which is instability. And now, of course, you have, as Nellifer said, you have two choices. Either they live under a tyranny or there's a civil war, and neither of those outcomes anybody wants. So, John, next week we're going to stick with this idea and we're going to talk to the great historian, Peter Frankopan, the man who wrote The Silk Road, yeah. one of the greatest, I think, fantastic book, history yeah. books I've, I've read ever. It's an it's amazing... It's long, amazing. but it's good. <laughs> it's all... <laughs> we'll, give you, we'll give you the Coles notes. Remember the Leaving Search? You got to, I don't want to read the whole of Hamlet. Just tell me what he said. Tell me what's important. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you that one. But we're going to talk to Peter on Monday for next Tuesday's podcast and put a big, big geopolitical slant in the whole thing. So we will talk to you then. Take care. To all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without your support. It means a huge amount to us. Also, all your feedback, your suggestions, your comments, our comments to you, our replies to you, really is the essence of the whole thing. So, again, thank you very much. And for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David Mike Williams.